welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, and welcome to a very, I say very special, it's a special episode of the Health Tech Podcast. It's episode 300. I actually, I was trying to think back, did I do anything for episode 100? Did I do anything for episode 200? I don't think I did. I think I just breezed through them just because, um, well, my guest today will know what that's like, just not knowing where you are in all the content that you're creating and trying to make your way through. Um, But here we are, episode 300. I have a special guest with me and it is a podcaster because we're turning the tables a little bit and he's going to ask me some questions today so that I can have a bit of a breather, give myself a treat for episode 300 um, and just be asked the questions for a change. So I would like to welcome... Musty from the Big Picture Medicine podcast, or Mustafa Sultan, I should probably say. Uh, I know him as Musty. Um, he, yeah, as I say, he's the creator of the Big Picture Medicine podcast. It is a very cool podcast that I'm sure many, many, many of you listen to on here. He gets some incredible guests, did some amazing things to get some incredible guests, if I remember correctly, um, with wax seals and perfectly handwritten notes and things like that some awesome stuff but anyway um musty welcome how you doing man i'm really good james um and look i messaged you the other night basically saying you're coming up to episode 300 what are you doing for it (laughs) and you were like nothing (laughs) honestly (laughs) so i had to kind of yeah i had to kind of beef you on that point and just say you need to do something um I was on ChatGPT a few minutes ago and I was trying to find out how many podcasts have reached episode 300. So 15% of podcasts reach 100 episodes and it thought that about 1% reached 300. So it's a monumental um, achievement and I know how difficult it is to keep on going week on week. I think all creative projects are fun at the start and then it gets really, really hard. So I think it'll be really interesting for your audience to kind of turn the tables a bit, hear about some of the behind the scenes stuff and just hear about what you've learned from doing all of these because yeah. um, people like you uh, you're a well-liked <laughs> person and they probably want to <laughs> hear about you know your thoughts on some of this stuff so yeah i want to i want to turn the tables on you basically cool no it sounds fun man yeah definitely one percent gets episode three yeah I, I can believe it i can believe it because uh yeah there are t- i mean i took a i actually took a break in the summer for probably a few months three four months maybe i think i took a break for because yeah, I just I felt a little bit burnt out with it. Or I don't know if burnt out is the right phrase, but I just got to this point where like I was sort of sick of the sound of my own voice. Like I was, I was sort of sick of asking the same questions and it was it it became a bit formulaic. And I think that's the challenge when you're trying to create content that people enjoy is that you can find you can strike that balance of like right, I now know what everyone enjoys and so I'm going to do that. But then you forget that actually part of your longevity is you enjoying it. And I think you can, for someone like me and for, and for people like us, man, that we're, we're, we're medically trained. We're trained to transcend however we feel about anything for the benefit of whatever the goal is, right? And in medicine, it's the patients and you will just do, you'll transcend your tiredness and all that sort of stuff and thirst and hunger and you'll just meet the goal. And I think we're good at that. I think it trains you well to do that. The, the, there aren't many quitters, I would say, but they, you can kind of get a bit like that in in content creating, I think. And, and that's where I got to. I, I just got to this point where I was like, am I enjoying this? I'm not really sure I am anymore. And I just got that feeling when you looked at the calendar, like, oh, I'm not actually, I'm not looking forward to it as much. So I thought, yeah, I'll take a break. I'll refresh. I'll figure it out. I'll 
play with some new formats and I talked to a load of different podcasters actually I remember I, th- I talked to you I talked to um Tara I talked to yeah a few a few other podcasters about it and yeah remarkably common actually um the sort of creator burnout but yeah I got through it man and and like you, you know what? I was looking forward to it looking forward to getting back in I just sort of made this rule with myself that I would I, I would bring on people that I actually wanted to just chat to and wouldn't put myself under pressure for like the big names or the specific health tech thing that they did. Like, oh, is YouTube health tech? Oh, I don't care. I'm just going to get Vishal on and just chat to him because I know Vishal and I like Vishal. So it can actually be fly in the wall conversations. And yeah, lo and behold, everyone really likes those. So um, full circle. Everything's good again. Yeah, I think with creative projects, there's definitely Seth Godin, who's kind of the OG marketer, um, it's a slightly different concept, but he calls it the dip where mm. I think usually around six months into a project, you know, when you first start it, everyone loves you. They tell you what a great job you're doing. Uh, everyone shares it. Uh, there's loads of interest. Uh, you put it on your Instagram story and then six months in, no one cares. <laughs> your friends have stopped listening. I think most of my friends got to maybe episode 10 and then yeah. they stopped even pretending that they were listening. Yeah. They were just like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't go on that. Um, but what, in terms of getting to that burnout stage and just feeling like I'm not really enjoying it anymore, you've talked about some of your reflections and learnings from that, but what have you kind of changed going forward? And then I think the second point is like, how do you see this reaching episode a thousand or do you even want to do that? Like, Mm. how are you going to make this sustainable and keep on going? Yeah, I think really good questions. So what's changed after the dip? As I say, I I think the main thing is for me, I'm at a point now where I suppose the podcast isn't the, it's not the most important thing that I do in that week. It definitely was at the start because of the speed that I was growing network and personal brand and all those different things. And so I think it's more important to enjoy it and actually to reap the rewards of building audience and building network so that people do want to come on it's inbound and being selective on who you bring on and just trying to enjoy the conversations. I think that's it for me. It's like, let's just try and enjoy the conversations. And I think the more that I enjoy the chat that I'm having, the more genuine it is and the more actually engaging and listenable it is. So I think the key to getting to a thousand for me, and yes, I do want to get it to a thousand, I don't know in what format it will be. I think that's the interesting thing. You never know. I think as a content creator, you want to serve your audience. That's the point. The point of it, and we talk about this at Somex, we want to elevate the health tech sector and elevate the biotech sector. And part of that is, I suppose, the selflessness of, yeah, it is hard. It is difficult some days. But actually, people message to say, that they've had an idea, that they've started a company, that they found a co-founder. Guests will say they've hired people and that they're making impact. And so actually there's this, there's this feedback loop of, of not to over egg it, that there's the most important thing in the health tech world. Of course it's not, but it does a service to people. And actually you should try and feel good about that, but also try and feel a level of responsibility for that because, Hey, so much of what is beautiful in life is the other side of what's difficult. And so, I think appreciating your responsibility and appreciating the privilege that you have and the audience that you have and serving that audience and remembering all of that, I think is important. But also you have to be somewhat selfishly motivated in turning the conversation to what you want to talk about and 
I have wider business interests now with Somex and our clients and trying to, you know, help them out with the, some of the things that we talk about. And, you know, but it's, it's wider than that. You know, we, we only bring clients on at Somex because we believe in what they're doing and the areas that they're in and that kind of thing. And so it all kind of feeds into this sort of greater, greater narrative, I guess, of like, I'm trying to use it to do good across everything that I'm doing. Um, and trying to enjoy it at the same time. So I don't, as I say, I don't know what I don't know what form it will take. Whether we're on YouTube, which is coming, or whether it'll be the next platform like VR hologram stuff in your living room. Whether it's me and you in someone's living room next, I don't know. But I think you know I'll be creating content. Of course I will, um, because I learned a while ago, a little while ago, I learned that I'm actually a creative, and I've known I, I've known that a little bit all my life but never actually had it said out loud and actually coming to the realization that I actually am a creative and I do need a creative output and being able to mix that with work is incredible and that's why I enjoy this stuff that's why we will get to a thousand um I think me and my audience and um yeah just need to just need to keep enjoying it man I think that's the main thing well, where, where do you see this going next then? So you mentioned YouTube and kind of joked mm. about VR and stuff, but what kind of interesting plays do you see in the future? I don't know. And I think there's so, I think that's awesome that I don't know. I definitely, I want to do the video content thing. It's been a long time coming. It's been, I'd say, a mixture of it's harder yards and we've been a bit lazy slash we've just had other things going on that we've not lent into the video side of things yet. You know, I talking just now before we start hit record about, you know, there's a lack of health tech content on YouTube. It's therefore probably not being searched for. There's probably a bit of cause and consequence there, but it's probably only a matter of time just because people are going to search on Google for stuff and YouTube videos come up first. So if you're answering popular search questions with YouTube videos, particularly around health tech, you're going to get views. If you're getting views, then you're getting impact with the answers that you're giving and, you know, the spin that you put on things and being able to control the narrative somewhat and put your values into the world and get people to see them. So I think the the YouTube thing is important. I definitely want to give it a strong go. There's lots of this public accountability that I'm doing, mentioning that I'm doing a YouTube channel and the podcast will have its own so people can just listen to podcast episodes. But I want to do a personal YouTube channel where I actually talk about health tech and talk about some interesting companies, things that interesting companies are doing, what that might mean for the regular person and um yeah that kind of stuff so i i, I want to talk about health tech more uh and yeah i guess it's towards that elevating health tech as a whole vibe i think if there's health tech missing on youtube then i think i'm in a good place to at least start that and and get a group of creators that might be excited by it and and that kind of thing so i, I am excited about that i think it is going to go there I don't, I don't know about holograms in people's living rooms or anything but um yeah, as I say, I don't know. It sounds really silly, but one thing that I am really keen to do is we're at the point of, at Somex now where we we meet every kind every month. We have like a team day, and we pay for office space in London so that we can all get together. It's getting to the point now where it's actually cheaper for us to have an office permanently than it is to just get everyone into a room for one day. So when we do get an office, which may or may not be relatively soon uh depending on a few client movements and higher movements but um just getting a little studio built mate like a little little corner of the office where we can just record mm. podcasts and you can record podcasts and any you know health tech creators why not if they can just come and rent the space out um 
or we can give it out. So I think that's cool in creating a bit of a creator community. I think one thing I liked at the YouTube event that you and I were at where they gave the YouTube health strategy was there was a, a room. I've never been in a room full of content creators before. Like I've never, I've never had that kind of energy and that buzz before and mixing that with healthcare, health tech, that energy for content creation, I think is really interesting. So I'm not naturally extroverted. I'm naturally very introverted and I like keeping myself to myself, but being in that room, which I think it's fair to say had a majority of extroverts, there was an energy to that and being part of a movement that I suppose brings more content and more people about the things that I like, I love, I care about in healthcare and technology, I think is awesome. And I really want to kind of ride that wave and, and be part of part of a community because it's like what we do at Somex, man, with marketing. Yeah, okay, at the moment we do B2B LinkedIn stuff, we do video content, we do Twitter, we do so like we we do content and all those things, we do press and PR the way that press and PR is right now. But ultimately we do, we help companies communicate to their audiences. That's going to change. The, the methods are going to change. It's not going to be LinkedIn in a thousand years, is it? It's going to be something completely different. But we just need to move with whatever whatever it changes into. And I kind of feel that way with this podcast and with content creation, which is part of it, you can't be completely selfish and just put out what you want to put out the whole time. Part of it is listening. Part of it is looking at your metrics and your audience and finding out what sticks because part of the joy is making sure that you are putting out what people are enjoying. And so I will just keep listening. I'll just keep listening and watching to the audiences and the metrics to see what people like, see what people enjoy and just move this towards whatever it needs to, whether that's through changes in the content, whether that's through changes in the platforms, but in the content, even now it's very different to what it was. Like I lean far more now into talking about the people and understanding the people, understanding their motivations, understanding their career moves, understanding how and why they did certain things. So it's turned the podcast, I suppose, has turned more into the people behind healthcare and technology's biggest innovations. I think that's probably the new tagline, really, because I go more into that than I do like what's your business model and where did you raise funding from and all those kind of more technical things. Um, so yeah. A, a long rambling answer to your question, but I will move with the market, I suppose is the summary. I want to talk about your niche and where you see that niche going towards. I guess we've kind of discussed it, but in business books, there's this framework of being a vitamin versus being a painkiller. So ideally you want your business to be the painkiller. Like a vitamin is like a, a nice to have, but a painkiller, you really need it right now. And I think one of the criticism I have of, say, both of our content is that it's I don't think it fits into the painkiller model. It's mm. knowing about health tech and knowing about these things. It's like, it's kind of nice to know, right? Mm. But if our content was more skewed towards, I don't know, like this is how you raise money or this is how mm. you, uh, you know, this is how you get into med school or just something that's very like, I need to know this information mm. right now mm. and I'll do whatever I, ha whatever I can do to pay it. Mm. Do, you, do you have any thoughts on where you see your niche going and like, I don't know, do, do you think it's worth delving more into the painkiller model? I think it's a great question, man. And actually I want to go the other way. I think the painkiller <laughs> model is, it's, it's a really great analogy 
Because how would you describe Joe Rogan's podcast in that framework? Is he a vitamin or is he a painkiller? Oh, that's definitely a vitamin. No one, right. no one needs, no one needs that. <laughs> right, exactly, and that's the most popular one in the world. And I think elements of my content on this podcast, there are pain-killing elements. You know, Will Gibbs from Octopus Ventures gives his tips on fundraising. All of a sudden, you've got that. But I think for the enjoyment of the listener and the enjoyment of myself. I'm more in a vitamin game. I'm more interested in going deep around certain elements of the person than I am about distilling actionable tips. Now, actionable tips come out, but I think part of the joy of listening to long form is the listener discerning those tips for themselves based on how they perceive the information they're receiving. Now, what I mean by that is you can listen to someone's background and you can see yourself in that background, not necessarily because they did the same course as you, although they might at university, not necessarily because they had the same job as you, although they might, but because when they were in that, those situations, the way they describe how they feel is might be the same how you feel right now. And then that person went on to do great things. And there's an inspirational component of that. So I think with content, you need to educate, inspire, and or entertain. And I think that is what I try and do on the Health Tech Podcast. And it's and it, I, I think it can often just sound like I just turn up and and just have a jolly and, and ask some questions that I want to know the answers to. Now that is true, but I always have in the back of my mind, is this dull? Is this boring? Do I need to move on to something else? Like, is this important? Has the listener learned anything? Like, have we just gone on a tangent for too long? Like, do I need to cut that in the edit? Can I shrink that down to make it, you know, more punchy? So I'm always thinking these in the background, so, but I, I want to give the listeners enough information so that when they're listening, it's like a fly on the wall conversation that they may or may not tune in and in or out of, to be honest. But at times they're going to be educated, at times they're going to be inspired, and at times they're going to be entertained. But I think the reduction of content into the pain-killing elements is something that I think takes away from the model that I'm trying to produce content around, if that makes any sense. I think there's a, there's a beauty in the two-way relationship of listening to my episodes or anyone's episodes that does the vitamin model. Um, there's a beauty in that person then thinking and ruminating and understanding and emoting with that to then come up with something new. And I think that's the beauty of ideas, right? It's often the coming together of two things that will create an idea, not something sitting in isolation. And so if you've already discerned it and you're just giving them the idea, well, I think you'll miss you're, you're, you're perhaps removing some of the beauty from that individual or, or some of the uh, enjoyment and joy for that from that individual of actually discerning it themselves. Um, so I, I, I would rather, and I'm actually interested in moving to a Rogan model of just chatting to someone for three hours 
and just seeing what content would come out of that. Because if I talk to, you know, I just, I just spoke to, um, I mean, they're a client of ours, but Myota, I spoke to the founder, um, Thomas, who is a computational biologist who has done an obscene amount of research into the gut microbiome, the effects of fiber being turned into short chain fatty acids and that affects uh, reduction of plaques in the brain and, uh, uh, prevents Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. And, and it's like, if I had three hours to just like ramblingly talk to that guy and, and really get into the science and understand it and really understand how he sees how that's going to affect the world. Like I'd quite like to have that conversation because I'm on that journey too. I'm on that journey of what can I be inspired by from this? What can I learn from this? And so taking the listener on that journey too, I think would be really cool. And I think that's what Rogan does incredibly well. Um, he often doesn't conclude that he does conclude things a fair amount based on his own beliefs, but he often doesn't. And he leaves that space out there for people to wonder. And I think that's the kind of inspiration bit. There's education, there's inspiration, there's entertainment. I think he, he does all three of those incredibly well. He's a comedian. Of course he will do entertainment bit, but, um, yeah, that's how I see the vitamin painkiller thing, man. This, that's very interesting because overall, I actually disagree with you, which will be interesting. Um, but the part I agree with you on is on the inspiration point of view, because it's kind of like, you know, you're a bald white dude and you sit down with Jeff Bezos or Rogan and they tell you, you can go achieve anything. And that mm. would really probably hit hard because, Hey, this is someone who looks like me, um, versus just being sat in a restaurant and a fortune cookie <laughs> says mm. the same message that you can do whatever you believe. So on that point, I do agree with you. I think the one, point I disagree with you on and the problem I actually have a lot so it'd be interesting to get your opinion on this is a lot of times I've had really really impressive people on and really you know with really cool stories and like objectively they are just an interesting person mm. and then when I kind of and maybe this is a failing in my own interview technique but whenever when I ask them for their story <laughs> I hope no one's listening but it's really boring <laughs> it's not interesting they kind of mm. they like totally you're like you just look at them like, you're so interesting. How are you so bad at telling your own story? Um, I could have done a way better job than you. So my, my kind of approach has always been to stay quite pragmatic rather than asking for your full life story. Ask about what are the three things you've learned from doing X or Y. Um, but I guess my question to you then to pass it back would be in these approaches. I mean, have you found any good ways of getting a good story out of someone? Because I think if you're not a, a natural storyteller or you're not media trained, it's actually a very difficult thing to do and something I struggle with myself as well. Yeah. I, I do this on panels a lot as well, but I, when I sense that someone is towing the party line and giving the media trained response, I'll interrupt them and I'll say, how did you actually <laughs> yeah. do it? Because and yep. and I, you can do that very, very nicely as well. And you can make a passing comment about, okay, that that's a wonderful polished version. What's the truth? Or there's, there's, a, there's, there's ways of doing it, but I think it's, it's about sensing and understanding that, well, you know, you said it, that's boring. And I have that same internal alarm that goes off when that stuff happens. And I do consider it my role to then, give that guest because my service is actually to the guest a lot in, in, in these podcasts. And my service to the guest is to actually give them the opportunity to not be. And that is my responsibility as the interviewer. And so I will just try and shock them out of whatever they're in, 
in order to try and get to that truth and and I'll make the corrections in the edit to again a service to the guest to make the episode sound sound like it's flowing but I think there's that I think that actually starts in the preamble that actually starts before you even press record because I've I think I've got the before bit on the podcast down in terms of building a relationship incredibly quickly. I think people do pre-meetings before podcasts and stuff. I don't just because of a time pressure. I have one hour. They might not have even met me at all before that. And so I need to build the relationship within six minutes, seven minutes at the start of that. And so connecting with them, explaining who I am, putting them at ease because they're probably nervous. They're probably wound tightly. And so like, it, it's it's like an it's like being an anesthetist. You've got to be able to put people at ease very quickly. It's something I was very good at finding common ground with people very quickly and mirroring their communication and their body language and all the rest of it to try and just get everyone on an even keel and relaxed. And so that then it becomes then easier if you're then going to interrupt someone and go, "Come on, mate! Like, how did it actually happen? You don't meet co-founders like that in in, in the real world." And then they go, "Oh yeah, I was actually I was actually at the school gates, and our kids go to the same school, and I got a chat into him there." And you're like, "Well, okay, yeah, there it is, there it is." And you sort of joke and change your demeanour to to show them that you really appreciated that openness and that honesty, and to and to try and get into that. The other way that I'll do it is. I suppose asking more personal questions um, and just getting a bit more personal with them and testing that water. Now you've got to feel your way through that because some people just aren't comfortable at all there. But if they are and you can get them on it, you can ask them the same question you needed the answer to at the end. And that's something I've done a fair amount as well, which is once I've gone through all their, because I usually start with the person for half of it and then the company for the other half, they're often in, you know, much more comfortable talking about the company and then they've relaxed entirely by the end. And then I'll just say, can I just ask you a couple of questions from the beginning again? Like remind me, how did you meet that co-founder again? But tell me the real story. And then they feel more relaxed and open because they've, they've done the bit that their PR team wanted them to do. <laughs> you know, now they feel relaxed again, that they've got everything out that they need to say. So I think there's an element of that as well and relationship building and just making the person comfortable. But again, talking of, you know, the podcast being serviced there, you do have a service to the guest to make the guest look good as well, in my opinion. And that's, or maybe that's just how I approach it too. I consider it, I probably burden myself with too much to be honest, but <laughs> like I do, I do take the responsibility of that. Wait, wait, so what's your, um, this is interesting because you run one of these, but I've had a couple of interviews um, where the PR agency or the internal PR people have been heavily involved in either organizing it or even sometimes they've sat on the call, kind of mm. muted themselves and they've been there. And I've got a, look, I really like PR people. Um, I think they're great, but I've got, from those experiences, I've got a pretty negative um, view of them. I think that they are great at ensuring that the person gives totally stale boring answers that follow like the kind of the company line and like maybe they look good in a transcript but they they really make sure that this person will not sound interesting and it's going to be a bad episode essentially what's been your experience of maybe involvement of pr people and similarly i'd guess from when you're doing your pr stuff some x how mm. do, you, do you do you have any ways of ensuring that you're not those kind of what, what do you call it like kill, killjoys or you know that kind of thing <laughs> fun sponge killjoy <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a great question. The higher up the chain that you go in, in big organizations, of course, like it gets 
much more difficult for I guess the freedom of individual opinion, if it's attached to a big pharma company or a huge medical device company or something that can affect a share price, you know, then all of a sudden the responsibility of that individual talking publicly becomes massive. So there has to be a level of understanding there, I think. And to have the same expectation of someone in that position at that level is just entirely unrealistic and so you're not going to get controversy <laughs> you're not going to get you're not going to get what you're looking for man from like you know people That's that are going to get though. their knuckles wrapped by um by a compliance team uh so i think it's you've got to do what you can and i think you've got to meet them halfway to some extent and i think sending the questions ahead to an extent just saying the direction of travel you want to take it in, making it not seem like a surprise to those individuals when they're going through it really helps because you're going to relax them. Now, there's, it's sort of like, um, I guess it's like a saddle in terms of like the, the difficulty or whatever the opposite of that is like a hump in terms of once you get so senior, they just don't care. <laughs> they're just like, they're just so good at sounding charismatic and free and like it is their opinion anyway that actually i think i so we i had one of the um one of the president president at ge was the title and it was of a region globally i think it was EMEA or similar maybe it was apac actually oh my god incredibly charismatic incredibly nice it was everything was easy from tanso it was a wonderful episode it was so easy to do um he was so relaxed it was so but but then people that are don't like the term like lower down, but you know what I mean? Like in a different position that's not president might be a lot more anxious and that kind of thing. So you've got to be a bit more careful, but I think it's about expectations, man. And it's, it's doing what you can to do all the same stuff, make the guests feel at ease and comfortable, but also you've got to extend that to the PR team as well and actually go, well, they are just doing their job too. Like they, they have the company share price to look after just as much as everyone else. And so, um, yeah, they're not, you're not going to catch them out and they don't want to be caught out. So I, I think my, the thing is with my questioning as well, I think you, if you listen to a few episodes, you know the route I'm going to take, you know the route I'm going to talk about their career up to that point. They're going to talk about some of their, some of their kind of thoughts, feelings, emotions, and things they liked and didn't like about the way they got to where they are. Like, you, And then they're going to talk about the company and I give them the space to tow the party line and ask them a few interesting questions beyond that. But yeah, my expectations don't extend too far into, uh, into anything there, mate. I had this interesting, well, what I regard as an interesting thought a few weeks back around someone who makes a good media personality and is a good interviewee and is an interesting person to listen to and what kind of person that is and if that person is a good person so I guess the easy way of illustrating what what I mean is like, say, Donald Trump, where, you know, I won't comment on kind of the politics, but a lot of people don't really like him as a person. But it's undeniable that as a media personality or say Boris Johnson, whoever, you know, whatever kind of populist leader you want to look at, they make great media personalities. And similarly, when you're interviewing someone, um, I guess you might have had this experience where someone who's very good in a media way and they're very likable kind of on air. But then maybe when you meet them another time, you're like, ah, this person, I this is not a nice person. This is not a good person. And my feeling on that was that it's because a lot of the qualities that make you a good media personality, like being outspoken, having opinions on things, 
also just being very certain, I think, because obviously life is gray, but it's not interesting for you to say, oh, I can see this side and I can see this side. So, you know, I can see, that's so boring. You want someone who says, yeah, this one thing is the most important thing. Nothing else matters. Like that is an interesting thing to listen to. Um, and I guess my question to you based on that is, have you had any thoughts on say when you're coaching people or you're coaching kind of your clients on like, how to be a good media personality and maybe also towing the line between not being an asshole as well and kind of being respect respectable and someone, you know, someone who's going to come across well as well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, I've got a couple of thoughts on this. I've had a similar thought, although not articulated the same way, but when I look at in inverted commas, famous people or people that are good at media, for whatever reason, in, within their field, they're the media person in that field, like the media doctor or the media agency owner in Gary Vaynerchuk or, you know, that kind of thing. They are kind of caricatures in that they, they do want to extend what makes them unique as far as it will go. And that's what, as you quite rightly point out, that's what makes them interesting because they will double down with the strength of their opinion in that one area. And of course, if you sat them down for six hours and had a conversation with them, you, you could round them off and you could, you could capture enough quotes that would round them off and they'd go, yeah, okay, well I get in that scenario. It's not going to be blah, blah, blah. But you're, as you say, you're not going to be that interesting if you go down that route and you're constantly caveating. And so I think, Part, you're right, part of being interesting to be interviewed is having a strength of opinion or a strength of character or defining elements about you that are slightly caricatured. And I don't, I don't know what mine would be, and perhaps I land on the more boring side when I'm being interviewed. But in terms of coaching, I think the other thing is we're in health tech, right? People in healthcare, clinicians, we're evidence-based, we're academic. And we're having this conversation this morning. Our PR lead, uh, Jess, had a go at us all in, uh, in the team meeting this morning because she said, all of our writing is too boring. She said, whenever you, give, whenever you give me something, it needs to smack me in the face with how exciting it is. And, you know, I raised the point this morning, you know, that's actually really difficult to do if you're a born and bred academic. And she said, yeah, a lot of this, a lot of these read like university essays of like, on one hand, I think this, and on the other hand, I think that it's like, no, we're writing stuff for press, which is what people want to read when they want to be entertained or inspired or that kind of thing. And so this needs to be exciting to an editor. They should want to put it in their magazine. They should want to put it in their newspaper. And so challenging us to be more exciting in the way that we write things and things like that. So yeah, I, I think of course there's going to then be a self-fulfilling prophecy in that those that are then exciting get the media opportunities, which makes them more excited, which strengthens their opinion because it it gets them those spots, and then they're going to double down on it and the rest of it. So it will it will kind of be a flywheel um, from that perspective. But yeah, I in terms of being good people, I think that that's so nuanced, man. Like there's <laughs> plenty of good people that will just lean into it and be media people. You think of the, but but I I also see what you mean though. There's a really interesting, and I'm I'm kind of 
you know, you'll already know about this, but I read this marketing framework called ADA, which is A-I-D-A. And it's basically on how to sell a product. And it's basically attention, information, desire, then action. And I think that is something that when, you know, when anyone's ever (laughs) asked my opinion on how can I give a good interview or how can I be a bit more interesting about myself? And I'm definitely not an expert on this, but I do speak to a lot of people. I think the most important thing is the A in terms of attention. And that's almost like the hook. So I think when you're telling your own story, you can, you know, you could say something like, you know, I studied, I was always into computers and I studied mm. computational science, et cetera. And it's so boring. Um, it's almost like that type A personality being very chronological. But if you just have a hook, like a one-liner that's like, you know, I was that fat kid that no one wanted to talk to in school. <laughs> and then suddenly everyone's hooked like, oh, that's funny. Like I want to, and then you go on to say you did computational science. Well, let me tell you what's interesting about that statement. Good to let lead me- with that. Let me tell you what's interesting about statement. So, one of, so what I was going to answer actually is about relatability. So the route that I go down, I suppose, when I'm when I'm the guest, and I feel like when I'm the guest, I feel like my service is to the platform that I have or the, the the person that's brought me on, and so I need to make a good interview there. I try and be as real as possible. I I genuinely do. I just try and I really challenge myself to be like how did I actually do that? What did I actually go through? What, what did I actually do? Like, I, I I really want to make things real because I don't feel special in any way that I've got to where I am, which, you know, is what it is. Like it, you know, I've got a small business. It's nice. I've got nice life. Like I'm in health tech, which I enjoy. I was a doctor, didn't enjoy it, got out. All these things are, you know, relatively difficult things to do, but I don't feel special for being here. I just feel like, I've got information that I can actually disseminate to others that will help people get out of certain situations. To my point before about you don't need to be in exactly the same situation to learn from mindset to go from A to B. I think a lot of that is transferable. So the route that I go down is relatability. Now, what you just said about someone declaring incredibly early on something that makes them vulnerable yet relatable immediately that other people can see themselves in. Now that is an incredible opening. It's an incredible opening for so many reasons because you've, you've really people that fit any of those categories that you, that you may have said at the start that showed that vulnerability, they're immediately relating to you and they've already put the dots together of was there is now here. That could be me too. And so that it already is inspirational. And so there's there's so much nuance in what you've just said in terms of that introduction. But I think that relates more to the relatability than it does to, or maybe that's it's the, that relatability that grabbed the attention. I don't think it's less about the yeah. attention element. You could just let off a loud bang in your room to get attention or that kind of thing. I think that is more gripping from a relatability perspective. And, and, and that I think is wonderful because people will now relate to that conversation incredibly well. They'll listen incredibly intently because they want to know the answers. They want to hear this. They, they see themselves. Well, well James, this, this is where I think UPR people mess things up because it's very <laughs> difficult to lead with vulnerability when there's like a PR team member sat, sat in the, sat well, on the call. Do you know what I mean? I would say the PR team at Somex is going to lean very heavily into doing things that are weird <laughs> <laughs> because actually we, it's, a, it's an attention economy and actually we deal a lot in content and social media and we're in the startup world. And so 
geez, getting attention in the startup world, you've got to do, everyone's trying to be weird and outrageous. You've got to be the weirdest and more, most outrageous within reason. But I think for big companies, man, yeah, the, the, the PR team, the PR teams at big, bigger companies will just have different things that they're trying to protect. It's far easier to have a bland podcast that runs defense than it is to risk the potential benefit of running offense. So what you need to do as the podcast host in that scenario is, is think, okay, what can they be relatable in? How can I do this? And actually for me in those interviews, do you know what it probably is? It's probably when they're talking about when I'll push them on, like, why did you make that career move? How did you feel at that point? How did you piece together the Mm. confidence to actually become this or a CEO? Like, what did you actually do? Because at the minute I don't get it. And then they'll open up about something in their career, which is completely onside. Like there's no, there's nothing offside about that in terms of like risk to share price of a pharma company. They're just talking about their own individual background and they own that. And so, but they might talk about a really great mentor that they had that they actually like emailed 20 times and got 19 rejections, but eventually said yes or something relatable in there. So I'm going to go digging around to find some of that man, something that I know they can say and that they can talk about just to try and get to that relatability. Yeah, it's interesting you say this, um, but I guess on the in the whole kind of zeitgeist of cult of personality, even within say pharma, I think the CEO of Novartis, it's mm. he's, is he called Vin or Vic? Mm. He's very big on kind of communicating with people. I think he does a lot of LinkedIn videos. Yeah, he's he definitely content, a personality yeah. that people know. Yeah, he does content. Um, so I'm I'm finding it quite interesting how this is going to develop this kind of CEO or founder who's almost like a larger than life personality that kind of supersedes the the brand or business they're representing. This will be a very cool play in the it will be, man. It will be, man. And I think I think what is interesting there to kind of wrap up some of the other stuff that you talked about there as well is like there is this risk of sort of being disingenuous and the person that is being presented is that just an extension of as to your point, the PR team's wishes and is is that is that a hologram of the of the what's written down for the PR team to present to the world? That's just that's a serious question. And actually that I think is one of the beauties of good content is that it is genuine. Like you and I, that YouTube thing when we heard from from them that their strategy is twofold. It's not just the NHS and NHS organizations creating a- approved videos that are relatively sterile, but they have to be relatively sterile. If it's like, is this mole cancerous or not? That video is going to be pretty straight down the line and sterile. There's going to be not much um, human connection in that, but their strategy was twofold. It was actually to elevate the, the patient creators to show individual experience to build and foster community and connection. And so that's interesting that from that biggest video platform in the world, they're not all about the right information that's correct and approved and all the rest of it. They're actually talking about the softer stuff of building connection by elevating individual anecdotal stories. And so I think, I think that is an interesting thing to think about and, and risk with content of yeah, is are those videos that you're seeing the real person? And if not, are they going to be engaged? Are they going to be listened to? Is it just there for the sake of it? it yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, that. But I think we all have to question that of ourselves, actually. 
I think I have to question that in the way that I answered that question. Have I answered that question in order to like swing it a certain way? Does that, is that useful for Somex in some way or am I being genuine? I'm constantly questioning myself in that regard. Like, do I actually think that? I'll, I'll actually get to the end of a lot of questions and go, like, do I actually think that? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> have I just said something because I think it sounds good? Um, yeah, but I, I do my, I do my best to, I do my best to be honest. No, I think I think you keep it quite real. I would say you're you're definitely. I think that adds to your kind of likability uh, and relatability that you're someone who um, speaks kind of seemingly speaks their mind and doesn't try and you know kind of be inauthentic and and you feel like you're talking to the real person. So I think that mm. definitely adds to your kind of likability and brand. Um, I want to actually selfishly ask you something, mm. um, which I think is interesting to me and probably mm. <laughs> a small subset of your audience who are. <laughs> who like content and produce podcasts and make videos and like PR and stuff. But I wanted to talk about this whole content to commerce model. Mm. So you're someone who makes content, whether that's writing social media posts, podcasts, et cetera, and you want to monetize that or turn that into some kind of commerce. And I think the plays I've seen are like, obviously the advertising one, getting sponsorships, et cetera. That's kind of the obvious one. Um, then there's a play I've seen, say, from yourself and others who use that as a kind of funnel or to get um, clients for some kind of agency or some other business. And then there's a, another one where I've seen from the 20 VC guy, Harry Stebbings, who's really cool, where he's launched a fund off the back of his mm. content. Um, mm. But do you want to kind of just talk a bit about different ways of basically monetizing an audience or content to commerce? I think when it comes to doing this in health and healthcare, health tech, whatever you want to call it, it's going to massively depend on, I suppose, which bit of healthcare you're creating content for and therefore what the makeup of your audience is and actually what you're doing with the rest of your life and why is it important to monetize and what do you actually want to achieve. So the general monetize the amount of views that you get naturally only works for massive audiences. Um, think kind of like the CPM metrics that we would get if we advertised on our podcasts, you know, we'd make a few quid per episode. It really wouldn't be anything groundbreaking, would it? In terms of like CP, like cost per meal, which I think is like the, the, the pennies that you get per thousand downloads. So we're not, we're not doing anything special if, if we're, uh, if we're in CPM metrics. So monetizing directly for the size of our audience in health tech, or for me anyway, in health tech isn't really the answer. So, I mean, I use it, I use this podcast as like top of the funnel, free content to push towards my paid product. So I suppose in the same way that Harry Stebbings has built 20 VC, giving himself a massive network, massive credibility. So he now has epic deal flow into his fund. We're doing that similar thing, but we're giving out free content to the health tech community that shows how much we know about the health tech space with this podcast and health tech pigeon newsletter, health tech pigeon, the podcast. So we're showing the world that we know about health tech. We're providing value, We, but we're making ourselves known. And so if everyone, if hypothetically everyone in health tech knows about us, when they come to needing communications, PR, marketing, content, design in health tech specifically, they should at least consider us, which is great. So that's it, really. Like we're we're doing this as top of the. When I think of it in terms of Somex stuff, 
I do the podcast for lots of lots of different reasons, but considering it in terms of a money making model and actually like justifying its existence financially, I think yeah, it's top of the funnel free content to push towards my paid products. But yeah, I think it's rare in health tech that you're going to monetize directly. I think that is reserved for some clinicians, some patients um, that have built, you know, million plus audiences on YouTube. A few, you know, we heard a few from uh, from a few of them the other day. But I think most people in 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 this game are going to push towards paid products. And and look, even if you've got millions of followers and um, you're monetizing directly, you've still got the opportunity to push to paid products as well. Um, <laughs> look at look at Mr. Beast and his burgers. Look at Logan and KSI and their drinks. You know, we're not making those sorts of figures, mate. But we're we're pushing the odd pushing the odd health tech startup down into Somex. So, um, yeah, that's the way I see the world on that stuff. I, I want to ask you about um, happiness and fulfillment because you back in the day were an anaesthetist mm. who is. In, in a lot of ways, a bit of a hero, like, you know, on the arrest call, you know, you're like the, you're the man <laughs> and, you know, it's quite, it's, it's, it's a, it's a noble thing to do and, you know, not disparaging what you do at all now. Uh, but it's, it's definitely not as heroic. It's definitely mm. not as noble. I think, I did, what do you think? I don't you might disagree with me, but I don't think prestige is probably, I don't know, it's maybe similar, but, um, it's it's very different what you're doing now. Mm. And, you know, they always say the grass is always greener on the other side. Mm. Uh, but yeah, basically what, what do you think now having moved on from that role? Like, mm. cause uh, was presumably at the time you were feeling like, Oh, this isn't that good. I don't like working in the NHS. Mm. I'm not valued. And now you've made the transition to the other side. Like looking back, do you think that was the right decision? What has surprised you? What are the pros? What are the cons? Mm. Just, just talk about that. It's great. Great question. And I obviously get asked this a lot and I talk about this a lot in talks, talking to a lot of medical students and medical schools and stuff and societies. And and this comes up so much about the move out of medicine. So for me, I was at a point where I was looking around at my colleagues and I wasn't enjoying it anywhere near as much as them. Work was a struggle. I didn't like going. I didn't like doing it. Most people liked at least 50% of it, I would say. There's always overhead. Of course, there's always overhead. But most people liked a, a lot of it. And alarm bells started to go off pretty early on, to be honest. Um, F1, you know, you're excited. And I was doing a lot of quality improvement stuff. And, you know, I'd. I had a, it was, it was fun and F2 similar. There's a lot of change started anesthetics. Again, there was a lot of change, but it started to creep in then really of like, is this it? Like they're not doing too much more than I'm doing now, even at senior reg, like in the grand scheme of things, like it's not that different. And is this it? And I was interested in different things and I had lots of other interests like creatively and even even the conversations that I'd have in anesthetics, you know, I, as an anesthetist, you manipulate consciousness for a living. And I found <laughs> that in itself f fascinating. I found that absolutely fascinating. You manipulate consciousness for a living. And so I started becoming more and more read 
I wouldn't say well-read because the literature is obscenely large in consciousness, depending on what angle you come at it from. But I, I started to get really interested in it. I started to see what different faiths consider of consciousness and, um, you know, trying to find my own definition of what I thought consciousness was and what that meant for someone that was sedated. What, what did that mean for someone under general anesthesia? What does that mean with regard to death? on intensive care for someone that's unconscious and has been for a long time. What does that, what does that mean for that person's experience, that person's transition into whatever might be next or not? Or what does that mean for morality of what we're doing in intensive care? Do we have the right to investigate for basically just our own interest, knowing that they're horrible phrase that's used circling the drain and things like that. You know, it's, it, so many questions were so interesting to me, so interesting to me, absolutely not even on the radar of interest for everyone else I worked with. I was a fish out of water massively. It was always just do your effing job. Like, don't think about this. What are you even talking about? And I wanted to have a debate um, and I talked about it. We had a debate club and I talked about um, putting my name on the board with the title. What you would do is you put, you'd put the, your name on this list on the board um, of what week you wanted to do it. And then the title. And I, I, I wanted to write uh, intensive care. What's the point? Um, and I wanted to debate that with someone because I wanted to debate. I wanted to, I wanted to talk about various different things around how many people leave intensive care that aren't under 60 and there for trauma, firstly, and look at those numbers. But I also wanted to talk about consciousness. I wanted to talk about what that, what it is, does that give you a blank slate to then act on the basis of probability? In which case, uh, is there a point? Because if you argue that once that person is unconscious, they have no experience in this realm, could you then have a moral argument for just acting on the basis of probability? And if there's a 51% chance that that person will either wake and not have a good life or die, should you stop there? I just wanted to have the debate, but the backlash of even talking about putting it on the board, it would just made it not worth it because it really, it, it, it wound people up. People thought I was doing it just to be awkward, I guess. And I, I, I wanted to just expand the conversation. The problem was I, there was all this going on. And at the same time, I, I started to not get reckless with the way I was practicing medicine, but I, I start, I started to be just to, to make some decisions that, would have been good to have run by seniors first. Let's put it that way. And it just got to a point where it was like, I don't want to cross any lines here. I've got, I'm starting to get a firm belief of what I think is right and wrong. That differs massively from the environment that I'm in and the people that are around me. And I considered myself to be a danger to myself, not others. I was a danger to myself because of what consequences might've been. And so it became a very good idea to make my way out of medicine 
And fortunately, I had other interests. I was interested in technology. I had a network of startups because I was writing business cases to to bring them in and that kind of thing. So I knew how this finance system worked in, in healthcare and hospitals. I knew how to convince management to get something done. I knew how to speak to a tech company to tell them um, what they should say in a meeting to get them into a hospital So and get them bought by a hospital. So I, I had, I'd amassed this other uh, expertise in parallel. And so it became a really simple decision in the end because I applied for fellowships based on everything that I'd done in quality improvement and writing the cases and all that sort of stuff and talking startups. I then got a place on the leadership scheme, the FMLM leadership scheme, um, and got onto that, worked at HE for a year, plotted my way out. Um, and beyond that, got a job with the accelerator and blah, blah, blah. And it just sort of, it just sort of rolled on from there really. But I think, so your point about happiness and trying to make sure that I was happy, I think the biggest thing I was going to struggle with always was identity because you'll know that you're a, you're the medic to your friends, to your family, and it's more than a job. It has to be more. You have to justify it in your head as more than a job because it takes up so much of your life. So you have to define it as your life. Otherwise... <laughs> trying to say that it's a job and then going in to do night shifts and weekends is going to feel pretty bad. So it is part of your life and it is noble. You're absolutely right. And it is a wonderful career if you love it. Um, and there are elements that I miss. God knows there are elements that I miss. And some of those you've mentioned, you know, being the hero. I think there is a lot about that in anesthetics. You know, you swoop down to A&E and you intubate people and you can do genuinely life-saving interventions that if you'd have got wrong, might not have saved their life actually. Um, and that feels incredible, but if I quit today, someone replaces me tomorrow that can do the job just as well as I did, because a hundred percent of clinicians think they're above average, but only half of them are correct. And so the chances are, I probably wasn't above average because I didn't love it. So I was always going to struggle with identity when I left because it was so much of me. I did struggle with identity after I left. I was like, am I the health tech guy? Am I just a guy? Am I just what am I? I don't know. I don't know how to define myself. Uh, so I had to go on this journey of figuring out what I was to myself and to others. Um, but everything suited me more when I wasn't doing medicine. And that's not the same of everyone that leaves, by the way. That's not me glamorizing leaving. That's saying it was right for me. Having the same time off, i.e. evenings and weekends that everyone has off, suits me massively. It doesn't for others. They, people talk about being on call and liking the hospital when it's quiet, liking their own, having their own decisions to make and all that sort of stuff and being able to take a random Wednesday off to go to the bank and all that kind of stuff. I didn't care about that. I wanted to be off when everyone was off. I wanted the Friday night beers. I wanted, the, I wanted that buzz, you know? I wanted, I wanted the Saturday tennis matches and football. Like I wanted, I wanted to be at the stuff that everyone was at culturally. Um, and that was hurting me more than it was others. But yeah, once, I, once I'd got into terms of identity, I think the happiness thing then just becomes like, can I make next year a bit better for my life than this year? And trying to just put those punctuation marks in every year where you reflect and try and change something. And at the start, it was bigger things. It was, it was jobs. It was, well, this fellowship is better than that fellowship. And that was a big swing. Or joining the accelerator rather than doing this fellowship and now working purely with startups. That's a big swing. When I hit entrepreneurship, having a business and running that business, it becomes more 
little things that you're changing. Can I hire someone that does this thing I don't like? Um, and more of those little things. But it's also acknowledging that happiness is a massively moving target. There is absolutely no way that you can be finished in terms of like, oh, I'm happy now because life changes, everything changes. And so you, I figure that I have to just stay on top of how am I actually feeling about stuff and not judge myself if something I've said out loud that I love, I no longer love anymore. And, you know, you can say till you're blue in the face that I love doing the podcast. I love running Somex. I love writing Pigeon. I love doing this. I love doing that. And you can be sort of publicly accountable for people for saying that stuff. And you can make that stuff part of your identity. I now know not to attach your identity to any of that stuff. Um, and actually to treat the opportunity that you have in work as like a vehicle for just serving your happiness more broadly. So like what I mean by that is, I think having a business is a wonderful way of doing this because you can set up functions to just change your life. If you don't like working on Friday mornings, you can set things up so that you don't work on Friday mornings so that you can go and play tennis on Friday mornings because that's when you want to play or, or whatever it is. You can set these things up. It's hard, especially if you're working client services like we do, because clients I'm sure expect to be able to get in touch with me when they want to, if they're angry or mad about something and the client team, you know, has done something, what, like they're, they're going to want to get in touch with me. And so I'm always on call from that perspective. Um, but you, you can work hard to set your life up in a certain way. You can, you can shift yourself towards what makes you happy all the time, but staying constantly tuned into what you who you are and what you actually like and what you actually like doing is so important because the path of least resistance just takes you somewhere that you're not happy. Trust me. Entropy is an in incredible concept to think about here that if you leave everything alone and follow the path of least resistance and do nothing hard, it will all turn to dust. And I really believe that you need to make some very difficult decisions. You need to do some very difficult things um, with, you know, hiring and firing and, and things that, aren't the entrepreneurial dream, but do the hard thing because there's beauty, the other side of that hard thing and that complexity. That's, that's where, that's where everything you want is. Um, and the perverse thing is that, was it actually doing the hard thing that you secretly enjoyed? Well, I don't know yet. It still feels like some of those hard things are too hard because it's some of the first times I've ever done them. But I think I can start to see now that, as I go on this journey, the more hard things that I do is impacting my happiness positively in the long term. I can now plot that path because I'm starting to see it in that the second and third really hard things that I've had to do weren't as easy as the first and things like that. So it's, it's not a walk in the park, man, this for anyone. Um, we've got 11 employees now and, and contractors takes us up to about 20 people in and around what we do. It's not easy running something because entropy is always after you. Um, there's always stuff that can go wrong and come in and, and, and break down this castle that you've built and all its lovely processes. There's always something around the corner. Um, but doing the hard thing and knowing that the hard, the next hard thing is coming and actually just doing your best to not let that impact your happiness. Be happy despite that. Be happy because of that. If you can, um, not easy, but a life's work.
Yeah. How long do you think you're going to carry on doing hard things for? You know, there's the whole context <laughs> of uh, we're both big fans of Gary V and like, mm. uh, you know, I'm personally a fan of kind of hustle culture and all of that stuff. Um, but do you think, because you you've, you've definitely sound like you've got some elements of lifestyle design going on now where mm. you've created um, ways of still, you know, enjoying what you're doing now. But um, I'm guessing fundamentally, you know, you are still working pretty hard overall. So do you think you're going to wind it down a bit or do you think you're going to keep going? When we started, right, uh, it was Jess and I, and we had one client. Now, when you have one client, it's pretty risky, right? Because if that one client goes, you've got no income. And so the sensible thing is to try and get two clients, because then if one of them goes, you're okay. But then the next safest thing is to get three clients. And the next safest thing is to get four clients and then hire someone because your life gets a little bit better so that you can try and get the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth client, which makes you really safe. What's safer than eight clients? Well, 15 clients is safer, but you've got to hire lots of people to do all the things. But now you're safe, right? You've got 20 people working in your business. You've got all these clients. They'll come and go. There's some people doing a bit of sales stuff. There's some people looking after the clients to make sure they stay. Like everything should be fine, right? Well, no. Because look what happens now. Now you're responsible for 11 people's mortgages at least. And now I have responsibility to them. So now I don't want, because in the previous model, you just think, oh, well, if I'd lost 10 clients, I've still got five. I'm fine. All of a sudden now the anxiety is I couldn't bear having to tell people that I was making them redundant because of my poor management or because I just wanted to go on a beach for three weeks and just leave someone else in charge. I couldn't live with myself. So now the anxiety is I don't want us to have to do that to anyone. So we're holding on to these clients and actually what makes us safer than our position now to get more clients. And so like, it feels like this perpetual kind of increase in the safety of the business and, and, and our ability to keep our employees safe in their jobs um, that is motivating me right now. And so it's a funny one. Of course we have an eye on, well, if we got to X revenue, we could exit for Y. And that's a lovely number because that means we can do lots of other stuff in our lives and blah, blah, blah. And of course that's a vibe. Of course that's a vibe. Um, and you can kind of see it, but it sort of doesn't feel real. It is real because actually the numbers are pretty real. We'll probably do a million revenue this year. It's quite likely. And then go up from there, you know, get a six or eight X multiple EBITDA. Like, yeah, we could go for a few million in not too long. Um, it depends what we want at that time, because if you've run a really good business and you've got a really good business at that point, if you've done that lifestyle architecture to make sure that you are doing the things that you enjoy and you have this vehicle called Somex that allows you to be in the health tech world in the way that you want to be in the health tech world, doing the things that you enjoy, well, why sell? What are you selling for? Well, you're selling for this number that's on a thing on your bank account. What does that number give you? The number gives you nothing. So what would you then do with that number to give you the life that you want? Well, you'd probably end up doing the same bloody things again to try and get you to the point <laughs> where you had the life that you want. So I do see a world where we never sell 
and actually SOMEX just becomes the entity now, the entity that we stick with that gives us the, the vehicle for the life that we want. Now, there's there's an alternative reality to that, which is that this remains bloody hard. And actually, we get to a point where we could sell and we do sell. Um, again, you know, if Havas want to come over and buy a health tech function that works incredibly well, it is very cool in the space. And we'll give them a gateway to lots of other clients and all the rest of it. We're, you know, we've got a very compelling proposition to buy us, um, I imagine, because we've got distribution. We've got all of our health tech pigeon, health tech podcast stuff. We've got, we've got not only the agency, but the distribution for our clients. We've, we've got health tech. We've got partnership with Google. We've got, you know, all these things that make us relatively valuable. So yeah, we'll take an offer. Um, but I, we'll have to consider it at the time in terms of what we want. Now, trust me, I, it wouldn't. I don't think it takes much in an exit for people to have enough. I think, you know, there's that thing, isn't there, about like, what's the, um, for the person who's got more than the person who has everything? Well, it's the person who has enough. And so if you know what enough is, then you can basically, you've done it. Now, I think my enough number isn't actually that high in the grand scheme of things. I don't need to be the person that stays in the media saying money doesn't make you happy. I'm pretty confident there's a number that does make me happy. And I'm actually incredibly confident that there are so many people that get, uh, there are maybe not so many, there are certain people who get a number that makes them incredibly happy that you never hear from ever again. And unfortunately you have the survivorship bias of the people that remain unhappy with their number telling you in the media that money doesn't make you happy. Well, hmm, maybe I need to speak to more of them and maybe I need to have that experience myself, but I think there are things that you can do with that optionality that money gives you to give you contentment and happiness. And I imagine I live relatively close to quite a few people here in Weybridge that have got enough <laughs> that, that probably uh, don't do a lot of the hard thing with their time anymore because they've done it. But I think that's the other thing as well is like, if you've got there through something that gives you the satisfaction, again, I think there's a beauty to that. And I like that. I like the thought of that. I don't like the thought of winning the lottery. I like the thought of getting there through suffering. And that sounds strange perhaps, but I guess that's how I feel about it. Wait, will you, will you say your number or is that, is that not appropriate? I don't know what it is. Well, I, I know that it's, it's, it's single figure millions. Let's call it that. Like I'm not, I'm not talking about a, a billion dollar exit here that I take hundred percent of like, you know, enough for a nice house and the freedom to choose the work that I do because I think it's impactful and fits with what I enjoy and my values and all that kind of thing. I think it's, low single figure millions, mid single filly minutes somewhere around there, I think. Yeah. But hey, you probably never get there, right? I mean, you, you might not get there. Like it's, it's, who knows? Who knows, man? But a few interesting thoughts for you. Right. The thing I wanted to kind of finish on was, um, do you have any learnings or reflections from doing 300 interviews? Um, <laughs> that can be either just from, the guests in terms of things they've said that you've vibed with, or that could be maybe on the art of interviewing and just content production or whatever you want really. But like from these 300 episodes, if you had to condense um, a few learning points, what would, what would you say? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the first one I would say is entrepreneurship principles. So 
my podcast is interviewing largely entrepreneurs in health tech, right? I interviewed 200 entrepreneurs before I ran my own business, basically. If you discount the accelerator and, and talk about Somex in terms of like a cash generating, like growing revenue based business, you know, I'd interviewed 200 entrepreneurs before I'd even started it. So talking about entrepreneurship principles, which I was doing because I was doing accelerators, therefore it was relevant to our audience. I was just, I've been part of so many conversations that talk about really overlapping concepts. Um, you know, all the usual stuff that you hear, like focus, concentrate on your customer, not the competition, like blah, blah, blah. All these, all these things that are just sort of painkillers to your previous, um, point like those those nuggets of information that are, that are within all of the episodes like you have so much data that you start to see where all these things are collecting and you start to see what's important and how to run a business so so often i'm coming across things in running somex where i've talked to someone that has basically told me how i should approach this problem and that's that's a nice thing i feel like i've got enough data to know how to at least approach the majority of problems because I've spoken to so many entrepreneurs and got their tips, you know? So I think the first one is that I've gained massively from that. And I think there's, there's wisdom in there about if you're going to start a podcast and, and making it about the thing that you're interested in, but also useful to you and the information that you get. So definitely entrepreneurship principles is one of them. The other one I think I've learned is I learned this, I would say relatively quickly, which was, only ask questions you actually want to know the answers to, which sounds a bit silly, but don't ask questions that you think the audience want to hear. You're not going to have as good of a conversation. It's about being a good conversationist in the other day. And, and I suppose, you know, in part understanding what they want to talk about, but turn it to what you want to actually know the answer to, because you're going to listen and you're going to ask interesting follow-up questions and you're going to turn it into a conversation rather than it being too staccato of, and now move on to this and now move on to that. It turns into more of a conversation, which for my style of content was incredibly important. So that's the other thing. I think a funny one is uh, listening back to yourself and what you learn doing that. So in doing a podcast 300 times, I used to listen back to all of them for the first sort of 50. Um, then it's every other one. And now it's one in every 10, I would say I'd listen back to, but I still listen back and I figure out what my audible ticks are. Um, I used to like, I used to moo like a cow on, on so many of them. Like when people were talking, like I'd be like, mm, mm, mm. and I realized like, don't do that. If you're going to do that, put yourself on mute because the, the listener does not need to hear that. It's not active listening for the guest either. <laughs> like, But these little things and little phrases that I'd say that irrit irritate myself, but that made me a better public speaker. And so I think that's definitely been something that I've taken forwards. The confidence to talk to anyone, I think as well, the realization that everyone's just a person, you know, like it doesn't matter what job title or what they've done previously or that kind of thing. And, you know, I've not in exactly interviewed Elon Musk, but I think this has put me in good enough stead to interview someone like that and not, not be overwhelmed by the task. Um, so I think that's been incredible. You know, president of GE, you're a bit like sweaty palms before that, like, Oh my God, <laughs> like this is quite a big deal. But, but then you get through it and you realize, Oh, just a person who was really lovely. Um, so there's that. And I think the final thing that I would say is 
in doing all of these episodes, one thing when I, for people that listen, even to a couple of episodes that then meet me in person, people kind of know who I am and what I'm about before I'm even in that conversation properly. And I love that because I don't have anything to hide there. You can't hide your personality in 300 episodes where you're a bit mouthy, <laughs> like a bit chatty. You're not hiding your personality. And actually it's an incredible opportunity to build relationships with people incredibly quickly because people can be incredibly complimentary and they can tell you these wonderful things that they've done or said or people they've met or ideas they've had or companies they've started because of at least in part what they've heard on your podcast and because of you. And that's a really privileged place to be. And it's so great that people can feel like they can connect with me quickly because that gives me speed in a lot of the business stuff that we do. We onboard health tech startups for God's sake. Like we want them as clients for those clients that have come through listening to my podcast they already know everything that I know about the health tech. Well, they know, they know that I know enough about the health tech space. They know the network that we have because of the guests. They know the types of things that we do because they're listening. And so I think just having that much content out there, whether it's written because you've got a blog, whether it's audio because you've got a podcast, whether it's video because you've got a YouTube channel, put enough content out there and you're going to show your true self. You're not going to be able to hide behind it. So if you've got good intentions, it's going to reward the people who do, I think. And I, I, I kind of love that meritocracy element. Like I've not been cancelled yet, it, uh, probably coming based on, you even think how old the first episodes were and, and the little things you might have said or done, you know, like it makes you, makes you sweat a bit, but like, yeah, people are going back now trying to cancel me to make a point, but I'm sure you probably will be able to, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like broadly, if you've got good intentions, you you've got speed, I think, from the way that people know you and understand you. All right, man. Um, yeah, I think that was class. Um, I think we covered a lot of interesting ground in terms of content production. And I think those end five points were very, very strong, actually, around kind of the benefits of doing this and then some of the um, hurdles you overcome. So yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think that was a lot of fun. Um, and I think there's a lot of valuable stuff, a lot of interesting behind the scenes stuff for the kind of <laughs> diehard fans as well who might want to know what's going on behind <laughs> yeah. the cracks uh so yeah i think that was a lot of fun yeah i think that was good. i appreciate it man yeah no thanks thanks for doing it it was uh yeah not comfortable in some ways like it's super interesting i love i love your style like it's a bit it's a bit lex friedman isn't it just sort of getting to the <laughs> getting to the crux of it it's it's challenging it's good i like it um but no thank you i really appreciate it and yeah look forward to look forward to chatting on your podcast next mate yeah we'll do it okay awesome man thank you hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content